Sports are weird. With a few exceptions, like running or wrestling, athletics are comprised of a constantly changing, arbitrary set of rules, customs, superstitions, and traditions. Rule 2.0, an infield fly. Our goal to go playoff beards. That's amazing. I've never seen anything like this. Most of these procedures obviously are designed to make the game more interesting. But every once in a while, there's something in sports that makes people stop and think, where did that come from? You're about to find out. Four different sports, four different just-so stories of how some of the weirdest aspects of athletics came to be. To start off, let's look at the strangest piece of clothing in a sport with more than 150 years of idiosyncratic uniforms. polyester pullover uniform, fake futuristic uniforms, weird alternate color uniforms, 90s uniform tropes of adding purple to things, and to a lesser extent, aquamarine to things. That vest uniform. Baseball uniforms have quirks built up over decades and decades of play, and the stirrup may be the strangest one of them. It comes from so long ago, some players have even forgotten how to wear them. You love that look, He's got the stirrups the wrong way. The shorter part goes in front. <laughs> a stirrup is a weird kind of sock that only baseball players wear, and these days, even relatively few baseball players wear. That's Jesse Thorne, host of Bullseye, founder of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and creator of the men's fashion blog, Put This On. Essentially, a baseball player wears a white cotton sock called a sanitary or a sani that goes up to about the knee. And then over that sock, they wear a second sock, but that second sock has the toes and heel cut out. And in some cases, it is uh, that strap that is created by cutting out the toes and heel can go up to as high as the, you know, the mid or even upper calf, depending on the wearer. In early baseball, socks were important. James F. Marster's 1875 Sporting Goods catalog spends two full-color pages illustrating extra-long socks to be worn with knee breeches above the knee. People took notice of the footwear. Starting at the beginning of baseball, I mean the middle of the 19th century, baseball players wore high pants uh, with trouser socks, you know, uh, uh, stockings, which is why so many baseball players are named after the color of their stockings. And there's you know, there's different reports of what the reasons were for this. The one that I've heard that sounds convincing is that it was because it was sexy for those athletes to show off their calves to the ladies. Showing off for the ladies was important, but safety was paramount. At the turn of the century, socks weren't color safe, and cleat spikes were sharp. You put the two together, and you get the fear that the dye would seep into an accidental cleat wound and give the player blood poisoning. Surprisingly, the answer wasn't fewer socks. It was more. Essentially what they did is add a second sock underneath the top sock. So your, your regular socks, your colorful socks, those are woolen, and underneath them is a second pair of socks called sanitary socks. And the idea is that if your leg gets cut, you have a layer of protection. But... The moral of the story is guys started wearing two pairs of socks, but when you're wearing two pairs of socks, uh, your shoes don't fit. So they would cut the toes and heel out of the outer pair of socks so that it was basically just, it was keep it on your foot uh, and it didn't show uh, above your shoe, 
but you only had one pair of socks on effectively inside your shoe for comfort. This tradition of wearing stirrups lasted far after color-safe fabrics made their health benefits irrelevant. And then, baseball players, as they often do, that strap would show and they would kind of express themselves through that. So that strap kind of got higher and higher over the course of the next 50 years or so until it was, in, in some cases, Frank Robinson, for example, I mean, all, basically up to the knee. And so it was like this grand expression. In the 90s, the stirrup finally began to be replaced. First, there was the sock with simulated stirrup, patented in 1992. And then, there was fashion. When you get to the 1990s, there is essentially a, a confluence of cultural forces. One is that there's not really anything left to do with the stirrups, right? They've been up, they've been down. There's no juice left there. There's nothing left to get out of it. The other is, I think, that hip-hop aesthetics suggested a kind of long, covered-up look. If you think of baggy pants in 1993, you think of something that ended up becoming Manny Ramirez's pants in 1999. And so I think essentially it was a matter of fashion. But stirrups never died. There are still players wearing the weird socks and loving it. In the tightly regimented world of professional sports, the stirrup offers some much needed freedom of expression. He's rocking the uh, nice stirrups as well. There are very few places on a baseball uniform where a baseball player has the means to express themselves. The players who have the most exciting visual presentation are guys who really show their socks, right? Those socks were like all kinds of different things. They're adding stripes, they're changing color schemes, they're going up, they're going down. There is an element of neat fashion to them. The thing that I like to see is people making a choice. We'll move from a decorative flourish defying time in baseball to a rule so integral it may have saved football from annihilation. The forward pass. It may sound like a prize fight, but in 1905, a football game would have had far more bone-crushing and brutal hits. Boxing champion Jim Jeffries made that clear, saying, football is the hardest kind of fighting I've ever looked at. Call it strenuous sport or any other fancy name you like. It's just a big, red-hot fight. And he wasn't wrong. Punching it out was probably safer than punching it in the end zone. Consider the fact that in 1905, 18 people died playing football. That's John J. Miller author of The Big Scrum. And this was at all levels of the sport, from sand lots and, and high schools all the way up to college football, big-time college football. And they were dying because of the brutality of it. They were dying because necks were snapped, heads were banged. It was a violent and brutal sport. A fan from today may not recognize a football game from the turn of the century. Every play was a rush, and usually right up the middle. Regardless of formations, the basic fundamental of offensive football is blocking. Watch the number four back. He mows down the would-be tackler. Yale coach William Knox got to the root of the game's stagnation, noticing no quarterback was willing, when he felt sure of his five yards through the line, to take a gamble on 10 or even 20 yards around the end. So every play, all 11 men gathered at the football and smashed into each other to try and open up running lanes for the ball carrier. 
In the scrum, punches were thrown, knees were delivered to chests, and players were trampled, all while obscured from the eyes of the refs by the flailing mass of humanity. As more and more young men had to be carried off the field, there were those that wanted the violence to end. Its fiercest critics uh, compared it to gladiatorial combat in the Roman amphitheater, and they wanted to eliminate the sport. They wanted to ban it. They thought it was unsafe. It was led by the president of Harvard, a guy named Charles W. Eliot, who is the most important figure in the history of American higher education. But there were also muckraking journalists. There were newspaper editorial boards and magazines. And even the retired Confederate general John Mosby crusaded against football. These guys were determined. They hated this sport. They thought it was bad for America, bad for Americans. In November of 1905, Harvard President Charles W. Eliot wrote an article called The Evils of Football for Success Magazine, numerating the sins of the sport, saying, These rules of action are all justifiable, even necessary, in war, in which the immediate object is to kill and disable as many of the enemy as possible. But there is no justification for such methods in a manly game or a sport between friends. As colleges debated canceling their 1906 seasons for player safety, Football needed a hero to save it. It got President Teddy Roosevelt. A square deal for every man and every woman in the United States. Roosevelt recognized this problem. He saw that football had a problem with violence and brutality, but he also thought, you know, there's a lot of good in this thing, and perhaps it could be reformed. He summoned to the White House the three most important coaches in the country from the three biggest college football programs in the land. And he says, I value the sport of football, but we must change it. And so uh, he, he sends them this very clear message. He does not tell them what to do. He did not consider himself expert enough in football. And he also thought this was a problem football should solve on its own. So he tasked them with reforming the sport. And a lot happened in the next few months. But the bottom line is, that a new rules committee was born and it adopted a slew of new rules all having to do with player safety. The most important though and the most revolutionary was the adoption of the forward pass which up till that point had not been allowed and was done for the sake of, of as they called it then, opening up the game. They thought it would make the game uh, safer. Happily though, it also made the game more exciting. The, the forward pass today is one of the most exciting plays in all of sports, and it's one of the things that makes American football distinctive and fundamentally different from uh, rugby, for instance. The forward pass was shaky in its first season. The ball was still shaped like a watermelon and difficult to throw. Coaches hadn't figured out how to design pass plays, and an incompletion counted as a turnover. But soon, the pass would become a vital part of the game. With fewer people bunched at the line of scrimmage, instances of violence dropped, and the narrative surrounding the game went from the critics' demonization of a brutal pastime to Teddy Roosevelt's vision of a vigorous sport that builds characteristics so important to young men. I wish to see you boys that good citizens in the same way I'd expect any one of you to act in a football game. Officer, I got one question for you. What are those? Yeah, check them out. It's the new A5s. You gotta rock them. Money's gotta be the shoes. Shoes, shoes, shoes. You sure it's not the shoes? Sorry.
Not only did I buy my brand new white Air Jordans that I just bought. Hey, Dr. J, where'd you get those boots? Are you wearing magic shoes? He's wearing Converse, the shoes of the stars. Athletic shoes and sneaker culture are ubiquitous now, but 100 years ago, there weren't a lot of options. Leather cleats dominated the outdoor sports of baseball, football, and golf. Indoor basketball, which had been invented less than 30 years before, needed a different kind of shoe. It needed an all-star. The shoe was introduced in 1917, and it was called the Converse All-Star. That's Abe Amador, author of Chuck Taylor, All-Star. Converse was a rubber company. They made other products, and they wanted to get into the uh, burgeoning athletic wear field, so they did. They did not invent the design. Similar shoes were made in England in the middle, well, the late 19th century uh, by various companies, and they were typically called plimsolls. The All-Star competed not only with English shoes, but also with Spalding, a company synonymous with basketball even at the time, who had its own shoe called the Expert. The All-Star did have a few things going for it, though. The pattern on the All-Star's sole allowed for better suction to smooth flat surfaces, like a hardwood core. They also made the body of the shoe from canvas instead of leather. This made the shoes lighter and cheaper than their competitors. But perhaps more importantly, it made them customizable. They came out in different colors, which was interesting. Uh, Converse at that time, through the 1920s, would basically custom design the fabric. They would do different fabrics to match the colors of college teams that ordered the shoe. And then often high schools in the same state as the state college would order the shoe for their athletes in the same color. The All-Star did reasonably well, even as the parent Converse Rubber Company went in and out of bankruptcy. But then, All-Star sales skyrocketed. Because of Chuck Taylor. It has to be him. Chuck was, by then, the sales manager at Converse. And as best I can tell, he made the decision to put his signature on the shoe. So he was not a modest man. He was a great salesman, a great showman. He was kind of a P.T. Barnum of the sporting goods industry. Chuck had an innovation in marketing the shoe. He went around the country doing free clinics at high school auditoriums around the country teaching people this new game, but increasingly popular game called basketball. And he'd say, by the way, my company has this shoe. You can go buy it at your local sporting goods store. Over the years, he hired other professional athletes. He was one of the first guys to hire prominent black basketball players also. And they'd go give demonstrations and people would come to see them. You might get 100 or 200 people in some small town in the high school gymnasium, but it added up over the years, and he sold a lot of shoes that way. It did add up over the years, and the only thing growing faster than all-star sales was the legend of Chuck Taylor. Let's debunk some Chuck myths. He did not do anything to improve the sneaker, except possibly adding the circular all-star patch. He did not play for the Buffalo Germans, the Olympic exhibition team of 1904. He would have been three years old at the time. He did not play for the original Celtics, the most famous traveling team at the time. In fact, he honestly didn't play much pro basketball at all. He was a standout in high school. He played for a semi-pro team while he was still in high school. He immediately after graduating joined 
a couple of basketball teams in Indianapolis. His first good team was the Firestone Nonskids. And uh, Firestone had uh, probably the best basketball team in what came to be called the Industrial League. And he did play for that team for about a year and a half. And he was not necessarily a starter. And then he got a job with Converse and they moved him to Chicago. But Converse hired him because, you know, he was a former basketball player. So he'd be a good guy to sell their shoe. He did sell the shoes. And until the late 1960s, the All-Star was the basketball shoe of choice. Then, competitors like Adidas, Puma, and later Nike began making lighter shoes with better support using modern materials. The man who dealt the All-Star its death blow might have been John Wooden himself. In the January 23, 1984 issue of Sports Illustrated, in an article titled Foot Soldiers of Fortune, Wooden recalled, They hadn't improved the insole. The cushion in the heel hadn't been improved, and the area around the little toe was a problem. I had to use a razor blade myself on every new pair to cut the seam that would be right above the little toe. If I didn't do that, the players would all have blisters. With that, the chuck was done. But Converse hung on as an athletic shoe supplier by creating an improved leather shoe and having the likes of Dr. J, Magic Johnson, and Larry Bird endorse them. I'm Julius Irving. For 20 years, I've been making my rounds in these, Converse. Maybe so, but that's not all that let Isaiah play like he's 10 feet tall. The bird shoe, the magic shoe. Choose your weapon from Converse. On every field, on every court. Chucks have moved beyond sports now, becoming the iconic footwear of pop culture, from Dennis the Menace to Marty McFly to Harry Potter. Their appeal is vast and hard to quantify. That's the most interesting part of the story. And, and if I knew the answer to that, I'd go out and make a few million dollars selling something else. It, it was really uh, fantastic. There are unisex. They are unisex and multi-generational. The only thing that comes close are Levi's jeans. Uh, they became popular in part because they were cheap. They were a way of rejecting every other style. It's a way of saying, this is all we need. And that became, that anti-fashion statement itself became a fashion statement. They started to look different than any other shoe. They really stood out. From footwear, we moved to headgear. In ice hockey, helmets weren't mandatory until 1979. But for this story, we're not talking about the lids on the players. And look at all the hats raining down here on hat night, Staggy. Yep. It's sort of like the hockey goal scorer's gospel. Your reward, the form of manna, is the hats coming down from the, the upper balcony. That's Colin Fleming writer for SI, Rolling Stone, and tons of other outlets. A hat was something not easily parted with. Three goals in a game wasn't something easily done. And it was really a show of respect. Only in ice hockey do fans show their support by literally giving something back to the players. But scoring three goals in a game isn't unique to hockey. Soccer, lacrosse, polo, and a gamut of other sports deal in goals. But surprisingly, the term hat trick comes from a sport that doesn't use goals at all. It originated far from uh, a hockey rink, let's put it that way, in 1858 in England with cricket with one H.H. H. Stevenson, 
who consecutively had three wickets. For those of you not up on your cricket rulebook, a wicket is when a bowler, who's kind of like a pitcher in baseball, hits the wickets behind the plate that the batsman is guarding, getting the batsman out. It's kind of like getting three consecutive strikeouts in a baseball game. But considering the batsman can face over 100 balls in a at-bat, and matches can last five days, the feat is significantly more impressive. And people were so impressed by this, they passed the hat to get our man, Mr. Stevenson, a hat, a hat trick, as it were. The term hat trick and the practice of buying a player a cap spread over the ensuing 100 years, jumping to soccer and eventually to hockey. But the exact origin of the NHL version of the hat trick is debated. It probably goes back to the 1920s, but it doesn't really start gaining traction in the history books until the 1940s, really. There was a Toronto haberdasher who supposedly would give you a hat if you scored three goals or more in a game. And then in the 1950s, in Montreal, we have a guy, a hatter named Henri Henri, who would give a hat to anybody on any team who scored three goals in Montreal. So technically, you could be a Boston Bruin and go to Montreal, pot three goals, and you would get a hat from this guy. The Hall of Fame, the Hockey Hall of Fame, their official story, which is probably apocryphal, centers on Alex Coletta, who was with the Blackhawks in 1946, and they were in Toronto, and he went to the hat store to get himself a hat, didn't have the required funds, and cut a deal with the seller who said, all right, well, if you score three goals tonight, you can come back tomorrow, get yourself a hat. And lo, he scores his three goals, comes back and gets the hat. Similarly, the first game where the fans took their own hats and threw them onto the ice has been lost to time as well. The players don't keep all the hats. They're often gathered and sent to local charities. But if they did, one man would have a well-clothed head. Here's Gretzky with some room with Mike Keane. Gretzky dancing in on the backhand. Wrap around, scores! His 50th hat trick, Wayne Gretzky. Someone like Wayne Gretzky had, this is, I don't know which number's more boggling, 50 career hat tricks or that he had 10 in one season. So that means every eight games, oh, it's hat trick time. Now, that to me, you might as well throw your shirt down on the ice, too. Well, maybe don't throw your jersey. It means something different. And now someone's throwing a leaf sweater on the ice. He's playing. Stop, you're not going to touch it, are you? I think probably with hockey, it's the name on the front of the jersey and not the name on the back. So that, to me, is a kind of almost puritanical calling out of someone who might have been like a me-first sort of player within the fans' perceptions. The moral? Don't wear anything to a hockey game that you're not willing to lose if a player decides to share a special night with the fans. If you were at a game and you were lucky enough to see a player do this, it was pretty exciting. And yeah, you would make that sort of business computation in your head to, meh, I can lose this hat. This is worth it. This is special. Special thanks for this week's episode goes out to Jesse Thorne, John J. Miller, Abe Amador, and Colin Fleming. If you like the show, give us a rating and a review on iTunes, and more importantly, tell a friend. You can tweet about the show using the hashtag SINarrative. I'm at Harry Swartout on Twitter. This week, I have a special request. If you know anyone out there who is an original fan of the New York Giants or the Brooklyn Dodgers, 
before they moved and attended games in New York City? Put them in contact with me. And as always, for the narratives moving the world of sport, log on to SI.com. <laughs>